Welcome to Books on Air, the podcast that you don't want to miss. You're about to get a sneak peek at what goes on behind the scenes with authors. You'll find out their secret recipe for creating a book. We'll tell you where they get their ideas, and you will get the inside scoop on their next project. Want to know more? Terrific. We'll tell you where to find them on social media. Are you ready? Okay, let's meet today's author. I have to tell you, joining me today is an amazing woman. Wait until you hear what I have to say about her. Her name is Carol Lynn Luck, and she's here to talk about her latest historical fiction novel, Magnolias Don't Bloom in September. Now, Carol has both a Bachelor of Science degree in microbiology and a Ph.D. in cell biology and biochemistry from Purdue University. She also has a Master's of Arts degree in science education from Cornell. According to her, she's had nine lives, and what that means is that she's had nine careers, including, are you ready for this, a cancer researcher, a vice president of biotechnology, a clinical microbiologist, a university professor, a middle school math and science teacher, as well as a television talk show host, and I could go on. As a writer, Carol's historical fiction opens doors to cultural dilemmas. The reader experiences not only different places and times, but through the eyes of the characters. They're motivated by a strong sense of social justice and a need to survive. Carol, welcome to Books on Air. My goodness, you're so impressive. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. I've been around a long time. <laughs> Well, what I can't figure out, I'm reading through all of this wonderful information about you and your bio, what all you've done and your scientific background. What attracted you? What made you want to start writing and historical fiction? Well, uh, when I was in school, I loved math and science, and English was my least favorite subject. I absolutely hated writing. I felt like I had nothing important to say. But when I was in my 60s and almost retired, I transcribed a story from an 89-year-old neighbor about her harrowing escape from Poland during World War II. And when I finished, she said, these stories need to be told. And somehow that planted a seed in me that I absolutely had to watch blossom. So I incorporated her story into a book with three other stories that I had heard over kitchen tables, um, my grandmother's, my mother-in-law's, and a very dear friend. And that's how my first book came about, called Heroines the Kitchen Table. But it was so easy to write because I knew the stories and I just put myself in the situation. And I would suddenly discovered I absolutely love writing. So that's how it all started. You've just described something that I, I surely I'm, I don't know if you've heard this term or not. You've just described a back porch storyteller, and what you have done 
is something that goes back for absolutely centuries and centuries and centuries. The difference is instead of this being oral, you've taken those stories that were so valuable and you've put them together. We have to, I think, define historical fiction for the listeners. You do research. There are some things, as you just said, this was her story about her escape, and so that was a true story. But when you write a book, often just a story is not enough. You have to give it context, and you have to add characters and and action here and there, and that becomes the fiction part. So historical fiction, in my mind, is part true and part literary license on the part of the author. Is that how you think about it? Oh, yes. Definitely. And actually, before I even start writing something, I immerse myself in other books on the topic. Um, I even read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and I spent many hours in the library of the Holocaust uh, Center at Clark University here, um, just reading all sorts of things. Um and doing all kinds of research. And then, you know, some of the more popular things like Schindler's List and some of these other things, too. And um, it's it's just something that I have to really immerse myself in it so that I can describe the scenes and make the people really fit the times. That's one of the things that I really like that you did at the beginning of your book, the one we're going to talk about, Magnolias Don't Bloom in September. You take, at the very beginning, the introduction. Now, the thing that always makes me a little nervous about readers is they'll go, oh, I'm not going to read the introduction, and they'll skip it. In your case, I think that's so important because one of the things that you did in the introduction that I, I really thought was necessary for a reader to understand is that your story is set in the 70s. Now, that doesn't sound like so far away. I mean, it's not like it's the 1800s or something. But our society in the 1970s was in a very different place. And you're talking about Mississippi in the 1970s. The schools are just going through integration. And some of the things that we talk about in our society today that mean this today Back in the 70s, they totally meant something else. Tell me a little bit about that introduction and what all you said. I thought it was important. Uh, well, basically, um, that what happens is we immerse ourselves in our own experiences, our own place and time. And frequently, um, I've lived in 10 different states, and most people haven't. And so frequently, people assume that the whole rest of the country and the whole rest of the world is just like what they've experienced. And if we're ever going to understand each other and come to a real sense of um, unity in this country, we have to open our eyes and look all around us and take off the blinders and try to understand what experience these other people have had that make them uh, the way they are, make them talk the way they do, think the way they do, and have the kinds of attitudes that they do. And when I actually went to Mississippi from 
cushy college town in upstate New York, um, the culture shock was just, I mean, an absolute smack, like doing a belly flop in a pond. Mm -hmm. And and I think that so many people don't really experience this. And so I try to pull them into the stories and, and get them involved with the characters so that they understand the the setting and the culture and the a, just even a little bit to give them a glimmer of it because I think it's really important you've really touched you touched a little nerve for me I, I have to be careful you and I have just enjoyed talking to each other so much I'm going to start telling stories too but you gave you said moving from or coming from New York to Mississippi was like doing a belly flop in a pond. I had exactly the opposite experience. I'm in Texas. We moved from Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas to New Jersey. It was like (laughs) a belly flop. (laughs) And I worked in New York. I worked in the city. It was such an, oh, yes, I can hear you going gasp. It was such an eye-opening experience for me. Now, my father um, had been from Rhode Island, so I had a little bit of an understanding, and we'd we'd visited, you know, uh, occasionally. So I had a tiny, tiny understanding of the Northeastern culture, but nothing like I got when I belly-flopped into the pond of Hillsborough, New Jersey. It's you're absolutely right on the money when you talk about until you live there or experience there, you do not understand why people are the way they are. Good job. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's very true. Well, let's. Uh, is there a significance to the title of the book, Magnolias Don't Bloom in September? Oh, yes. Because um, this new teacher shows up there and totally wet behind the ears. She looks like one of the students. The cafeteria lady asks her for weeks if she's a student or a teacher, in spite of her spiky heels and her hair in a bun. And um, she she ends up um, trying so hard with these kids, and when she comes home and she there's magnolias all around and I love magnolias because they smell so beautiful right me too and um so she initially when I had written the book I had had her coming home from school and smelling the magnolias as sort of a sense of relief that she made it through her first day and this friend of mine who read the early draft said uh, Carol the only trouble is magnolias don't bloom in September and I went oh my gosh how perfect because the kids and Kenda, who does this huge amount of growing during this year, do bloom in the spring when magnolias bloom. But, boy, they certainly were nowhere near that in September. <laughs> so it's kind of symbolic in that sense. I really like that. And she experiences good news and bad news. I mean, you talk about the difference in the Confederate flag and what it meant in the 1970s. You talk about Yankee Doodle being played right. I mean, Yankee Doodle. (laughs) Not Yankee Doodle. Dixie. 
Dixie being played. I don't know why Yankee Doodle came out, but it did, because we've been talking about the Northeast for me. Um, they played Dixie right after the national anthem, and everybody kept standing. It was a different culture. The Confederate flag meant nothing at that time except that it represented Confederate states. And so that was something mm-hmm. that those southern states simply did as part of their culture and part of the custom. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Well, the, yes. And actually, the student who was responsible for the flag going up there, um, it was the flag from his grandfather's coffin that had been draped over his grandfather's coffin. And at the end of the year, I give it back to him. And when I did that, this kid never showed any emotion for anybody or anything. And all of a sudden, he clutched it to his chest and said, my mama was in tears. That was grandpa's flag when it showed up missing. And she kind of knew I had something to do with it, but she didn't know the whole story. I'm so glad to have it back. My mom is going to be so happy. That's a real event in your life, isn't it? Oh, yes. A lot of the book is is directly out of my diary. In fact, part of what I'd like to read a little bit of today is um, actually what a student actually said to me. I was so shocked. I I just, I put, I'm absolutely appalled (laughs) to get this from a student, but I was so glad that this kid was bold enough to say these things to me. Well, let's go ahead and share this with the listeners. Okay. Uh, Let me read you this section. This is Uh, in the classroom first. Ivory, this is sixth grade. You need to do your work in school. Don't you understand learning is important? Ms. Lady, you don't get it. Don't get what, Ivory? I cross my arms. Ms. Lady, how do you expect me to care about your math if you don't care about me? Uh, uh, Ivory, I do care about you. Yeah, how come you can't even say my name right? He puts his hands on his hips. Ivory, not ivory. I'm sorry, that's how we would pronounce it up north. I don't care about up north. Using the south now. You're right. I'll be sure to call you Ivory from now on. And Miss Lady, that ain't all. If and you cared, you'd understand. I's poor and I's black. I ain't got no money for pencil for nothing, and I never will. So what do I need your math for? Ivory, maybe you don't understand it now, but when you learn, what you learn will help you one day. I want you to learn in school while you can. What's in your head is the only thing no one can take away from you. Huh? Avery, the choice is yours. You can waste your time in school or you can try. If you waste time and don't learn, you lose. I want you to win. Ivory puts his elbows on the desk with his chin in his hand. He stares at me for the rest of the class period. Now we're going to flip a scene and I want you to meet um, the unofficial teacher mentor of the main character, Kenda. I'm eager to spend my next period with Mildred. In the teacher's lounge, she's busy grading papers, her fountain pen leaving tiny tracks of blue turquoise ink. Do you need a red pen, I ask? Heavens no, honey child, Mildred answers. 
I hate red, and so do the students. It makes them want to defend every little mistake. Peacock blue is more cheerful, and it stands out. (laughs) Can I ask you something? Of course. What's on your mind? This morning, one of my kids told me he has no reason to care about my math if I don't care about him. I get it. I agree with this point. But how do I convince him I care? You keep on working with him. Be kind, but firm. Let him and the whole class know you expect them to try. Be sure to acknowledge their efforts, and in due time, you'll win them over. When? In June, I wonder? I'll leave you there. Wow. You know, you know, I'm a former teacher and a former English teacher, and you just, you made this just flood right back into my head. I've, I've worked with basic students, and I will never forget when the principal said to me, okay, Cher, uh, Suzanne, you're going to be teaching a, a basics class next year. I thought, what? What's a basic class? And so I, I kind of started asking around and discovered that these were going to be the kids that were in the principal's office, you know, every every day. You know, <laughs> these were the troublemakers. These were the bad kids. And I thought, what have I done to deserve this? And how am I going to make this work? So I started thinking about it. And I thought, okay, these are not bad kids. These are kids that looked away for what to them seemed like a second. They looked away from the educational system for whatever reason. When they turned around and looked back, they'd missed so much they would never, ever be able to catch up. It made them feel badly Mm -hmm. about themselves, and so what did they do? They did something to get attention, so they'd act up. So the kids came in the first day, and I looked at them, and I would always wear black. I would always wear solid black the first couple of weeks of school. I had to try to get my bluff in because I really loved these kids, and I loved teaching, but I didn't want them to know that up front. So I, the, I'd wear black. Yes, I acted, you know, and so I'd look at them that first day, and I'd say, okay, here's the deal. I've heard about you, and you've heard about me. I don't care about that. You walk in this classroom, everything that we've heard about each other stays outside that door. You are who you are for me in this classroom. You can make an A. You might not have even thought about that. You can make an A. Now, this classroom is run by Harris Third Law. For every action... There's an equal and opposite reaction. So when you choose (laughs) to do something, this is true story. When you choose Mm -hmm. to do something in my classroom, remember that I have choices too. So what would happen is, you know, I was teaching high school. So these are high school seniors. These are 
adult bodies with kid brains, especially the boys. I hope you're not offended, boys, but that's how it is. <laughs> and so sometimes that cussing was a big deal, using bad language. I have ears like a, a bat. I can hear just really well. And so I would hear the bad language in the classroom. I would point to the kid and I would say, Freddie, I just heard you use bad language in my classroom. Remember, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You chose to use bad language. Here are my options. And then I'd list all the stuff, you know, go to the principal's office, do this, do that. I never wanted to send them any, anywhere. I never wanted them to get licks. I never wanted any punishment to take place for my kids. All I wanted was for them to realize that their choice of behavior made me choose a behavior and I had a choice too and so what would happen is that the, pretty soon after about the first six weeks or so the kids when something somebody would do something the kids in unison would say for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction quit giving her a hard time and so the kids started doing the discipline and because of the way that I would work with them it changed their mind about English and they went from absolutely hating it maybe not loving it but tolerating it and I I just really, you told me I was Mildred. <laughs> you are. It just. Yes. And, and in the second edition, I'm going to talk to you again. <laughs> There's a new edition of this book come out. <laughs> I would be happy to share this story with you because it's it, obviously it goes on, on and on and on. And I need to shut up because this is your interview. But see, that's the other thing that, that you do with this book. You made me what? think. And that's exactly what this book does. It makes the reader think. And I think that's so valuable and so important. I know our listeners are going, okay, 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 where can I find this book? Well, they can always find it at the big boy Amazon. And all they have to do is just put Amazon in their search, go to the page, and in the in the search feature on the Amazon page, here's the specific title. And let me spell Carol's name for you. It's very easy. Magnolias Don't Bloom in September by Carol, C-A-R-O-L, Lynn, L-Y-N-N, Luck, L U. C-K. Put that in the search feature, and actually all three of Carol's books will come up. But this one will be on the left-hand side, and it'll be the biggest. Now, in the upper right-hand corner, there's always a little cue that says, click here or look here. If you look inside, if you'll click on look inside, there's a wonderful, wonderful excerpt. Don't skip the introduction. Read the introduction that's right there, and that gives you context for what's to come later. Now, is there anywhere else that you want to talk about them being able to find the book, Carol? Uh, well, you, if you would like an autographed copy, uh, you can go to my website, which is www.carolynluck.com. It's all three words run together. Very simple. Two L's, two N's, 
and no ease. I love it. <laughs> now, what and, else? What else will they find? I know the book. All three books are there. What else is there? Oh there, well, there's there's a lot of information there, and also I have started this other things since COVID, you have to get creative with your life. And I decided that one of the reasons I love to read is because I love collecting hidden gems. They're like finding four-leaf clovers. When you're in a book and all of a sudden something hits you that's, oh my gosh, of course. And so I share my hidden gems in my bi-monthly newsletter that's very short, but it's just a recent book and there's a quote out of the book and then a little bit of background on the book and the story. So it's kind of like a book review, but the quotes themselves are really cool. Oh, I love that. So um, if you'd like to do that, you can go to my website, and uh, all you have to do is put in your name and email address. And I'll include you in sharing these hidden gems. I love that. That's a great idea. Your website's just full of stuff, and they'll see this list of all the different jobs that you've had. I, I mean, this is just amazing to me. <laughs> I think the thing that surprises me the most is that you have this scientific background, and yet this whole creative side has just jumped out of you. I think that that's so wonderful because you had jobs where you had to be very specific and very precise, and there were things that had to go exactly a certain way, and you didn't recognize you had this creativity until you heard that story and you decided you had to write it down. I just think that is absolutely terrific. Yeah. Now, you're doing. Well, I think a lot of it, too, is getting out of your comfort zone. And on my <gasps> website, I also have uh, links to uh, my YouTube channel, which are links to a TV show that I'd been doing pre COVID um, with um, our local access television program and it's called novel ideas where i would sit and chat with local authors and some of them are amazing one was a high school girl that just absolutely blew my mind she's an amazing kid and they're just really fun and i also uh, one of the uh, episodes is with hank Philippi ryan news reporter and intriguing personality as well that writes incredible mystery so much fun isn't it oh yes yes now you also have a facebook authors page right Yes, and the Facebook is Luck Golden Pages. And what about your Twitter feed? Well, I have a Twitter feed that's at Luck Writes, um, but uh, sometimes when things get too political for my own sanity, I ignore it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and let's face it, sometimes the social media just becomes more than you can deal with, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I have one last question, and I ask this of every one of my authors because I always think it's important for the author to have the last word about their book, about their work. When the listeners, after they become readers and they pick up a copy of the book and they read it, and for the last time they finish the very last page, and they either literally or metaphorically close the back cover. What do you want them to take away from Magnolia's Don't Bloom in September? Well, let me let Kenda, the main character, answer this first. Uh, she would say, 
Speaking the truth should be everyone's right and obligation, not just those in positions of power, but also the oppressed and those who witness injustices. That's really the main message of Kenda's growing up in this story, if you will. But more than that, I wish for all my readers to travel the roads others have taken. We all see the world through the lens of our own experiences. Today, more than ever, we seem to limit our vision. We must step out of our tunnels and into the lives and cultures of others. I hope my readers will gain understanding and compassion for those whose lives are very different than theirs, and in this way, help to build a better world. Carol Lynn Luck, you are amazing. It has been an absolute joy and pleasure to have you as our guest today on Books on Air. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. It's been wonderful and so enjoyed it. And I hope that your listeners uh, enjoy this episode as well as so many of the others. They're really great. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. But it's the author that makes the episode. I mean, really. It it, it really is. It's the author and the author's work that that do this. This is just, I'm just there to ask the question that the listener would like to ask if they were sitting here talking to you. But thank you for your kind words. That's very nice. Don't forget, listeners, you can find Carolyn Luck's book, Magnolias Don't Bloom in September, on Amazon. You've been listening to the Books on Air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net. You can also hear this podcast on iTunes and iHeartRadio. I'm Suzanne Harris, and I do so hope you'll join our next Books on Air podcast. Remember, you never know who's going to be here. Thank you so much for listening.